Good morning to those of you who are joining us in Bartlett and Blackberry Creek and DeKalb and those of you who are joining us online today. You missed the weekend service, but you're watching it. You're picking it up during the week. And let me say, as summer approaches and vacations uh, take us away from town for a weekend, I'd encourage you, go back, pick up the sermon you missed because they're very carefully, prayerfully put together in the hopes of being of benefit to you. Now, you're still going to miss the great worship, and if you've got children, your kids are going to miss Kids World, but I would encourage you to be as regular as you can during the course of the summer. But if you're out of town, make sure you pick up any teaching from God's Word uh, that you missed out on. Now, today we're looking at a very difficult topic, so I want you to pray with me and for me. Okay, as we prepare ourselves to listen to God's word, pray with me. Uh, Lord God, we come before you uh, in the words of the song. We want to fight for love. We just, we're not sure exactly how to do that. And so I pray as we look into your holy word that you would be our teacher. God, whether we're married or not married, uh, this is a pertinent topic. It impacts uh, so many people. We want to be a, a force for light in a dark culture in this respect. So uh, be our guide as you open your word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Eric Larson is uh, one of my favorite authors, just finished reading his most recent bestseller, a book called Dead Wake. It is the story of the sinking of the Lusitania. Now, the Lusitania, if I could recap the story for you, back in 1915 was Great Britain's largest passenger ship, 800 feet long. That's hard for me to even imagine, almost three football fields in length. And in in 1915, Great Britain was at war with Germany. And Germany, U.S. wasn't in the war yet. Germany was trying to control the waters around Great Britain through submarine warfare. They were sinking every ship in sight, military or civilian. And so the, the Lusitania had been warned. In fact, it was about to leave New York to return to Great Britain And Germany had taken out a full-page ad in the New York Times warning passengers about getting on board the Lusitania. Uh, Amazingly, 2,000 people still climbed aboard and set sail for Great Britain. Now, as they approached Great Britain, what I found startling in this story, I mean, I knew how it was going to end, but it it was still a heart-stopper to read it. What I found surprising is that they took no precautions for the possibility of submarine attack. I mean, they they, they did not ask for a naval escort, which they could have done. They did not zigzag, which people said they should have, the captain of the ship should have done. They were traveling at three-quarters speed, hoping to conserve fuel, but, but that made them very catchable by a submarine. The crew had not been trained in how to properly lower a lifeboat. Nobody on board had been told how to put on their life vest. And so when the German torpedoes sunk the Lusitania struck the Lusitania, and it sank in 18 minutes. Imagine three football fields of ship going down in 18 minutes. Almost 1,200 people died. And it was such a horrible disaster, we've got the log from the German U-boat commander who said he couldn't even watch it. He was looking through his periscope, and he saw people jumping to their deaths off the side of the ship, and he just lowered his periscope and glided away. My wife asked me, by the way, because I always read stuff out loud, oh, you got to hear this. She says, how do you sleep after reading stuff like that? Well, the the Lusitania is a fitting introduction to a new three-part series that we begin today. It's a series on divorce. We're calling this series Untying the Knot. Untying the Knot, the Hidden Costs of Divorce. In light of the fact that 40 to 50% of marriages in our country are going to end up in divorce, 40 to 50%. It is startling to me that couples do so little preparation for protecting their marriage from this potential enemy. And I got to tell you, when a torpedo hits a marriage, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. Just consider some of the damage that is done according to divorce experts. Now, for starters, there's the, the damage done to any children involved. And some of you can vouch for that because you grew up in a home where dad left, mom left, and you know what that was like. 
You know, according to the experts, kids whose parents divorce are more likely to have a difficult time in school, more likely to struggle with depression and insecurity, more likely to turn to drugs or promiscuous sex, more likely to find themselves torn between parents or step-parents. And, and then beside children-related damage, there's financial damage. You know, a good friend of mine texted me this last week. He's a financial counselor. And he said, I hope you're going to warn people about the cost, the financial costs of getting a divorce. A divorcing person is suddenly hiring lawyers, divvying up assets, paying child support, living off a single parent income. You know, there's a joke in the industry, my financial advisor friend said, the joke is, if you're middle-aged and you're thinking about dumping your wife for a, a, a younger woman, you might want to go out and buy an expensive sports car instead because it's far less costly. Sick humor. Then there is the physical and emotional damage. There's fatigue, stress, grieving, anger, bitterness, inability to focus, inability to sleep at night. And then don't forget the relational damage. There's loss of ties with extended family. There's weirdness with your married friends. There's dating again and often disastrous rebounds. There's blending of new families. Yikes. You know, I hope that one of the outcomes of this series is that those of you who are currently in a troubled marriage and may be thinking that divorce is the solution that instead you will choose to work at restoring your broken marriage with God's help because the divorce option is very costly. But marriage restoration is not the only goal. It's not even the major goal of this series. I want to address over the next several weeks people who are in the throes of divorce right now or people who have been wounded by divorce in the past. So here, here's what the series looks, looks like. Today we're going to look at... Uh, what the Bible has to say about divorce, because there are some biblical grounds for divorce, and, and some of you need to know that because, you know, you've been living under a cloud of condemnation that God never intended you to live under. I hope this service sets you free. And then next week, we're going to interview a divorce couple, a couple that divorced, later got remarried. We're going to go to school on them. What, what can we learn? What not to do or what to do? We want to put a face, a face on this difficult topic. And then the third week of the series, we're going to talk about divorce recovery. What steps you need to take to heal up? What steps will lead you forward instead of backward or staying stuck? So that's where the series is going. Now, one side note, for those of you who are wondering as we begin, what possible relevance could this series have to my, for my life? Because you're happily married. Uh, or, or because you're single. You know, I talk about divorce, you're not even married. Or because you're 17 years old and you just started dating last year. And you're saying, what do I need a series on divorce for? Let, let me just remind you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has called you to live not just for yourself, but for others. For the sake of others. So it may be true that there's no relevance for you personally in this series, but friends, we live in a culture where we're surrounded by people who've gone through this hurt. Doesn't matter what age you are, what stage of life you are, everybody in this auditorium across the four congregations of our church today, you all know somebody who's been wounded terribly by divorce. And so my hope, my prayer is that this series will make you a more empathetic listener Someone who is able to counsel and give insight from God's word for people who are struggling in this area of their lives. You get it? Good. For a dreary day, that wasn't bad. I think I'm going to need to throw in a few more get-its before we're done now. So if you brought a Bible with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew chapter 19. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to pick one up, purchase one sometime at resource so that you can have a Bible with you and follow along, or perhaps you've got it on your pad or your phone. And take your outline out as well. Point number one in the outline, we're going to take a look at God's prescription for marriage. Okay, that's where you begin a conversation about divorce. God's prescription for marriage. I'm in Matthew 19. Let me begin reading the story at verse 3. 
It says, some Pharisees came to him, came to Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, let me stop there, give you some background. The Pharisees were Jesus' constant antagonists. You know, they, they were always trying to trap Jesus into saying something stupid or controversial. So on this particular occasion, they brought up the hot topic of divorce. Now, there, there, were, there were two major schools in Jewish circles in, in Jesus' day on this, this topic. And the, the two schools, you know, they were divided over their interpretation of an Old Testament law that you can find in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Let me read it to you. And you might, you might want to jot this down. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. You could look it up later. But this is the controversy. This is the center of the controversy. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he gives it to her and sends her from his house, dot, dot, dot. I'm going to stop right there, right in the middle of the sentence, because we, we have just seen the crux of the divorce debate in Jesus' day. It's centered on the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, particularly what is meant by the word indecent. Okay, so if you turn to Deuteronomy 24, 1, circle that word indecent. Because Scripture says that divorce is permissible if a guy finds something indecent in his wife. So what does indecent mean? Two schools of thought about it in Jesus' day. Both articulated by famous rabbis who had lived a couple of decades before Jesus. On the one hand, there was a dude named Shammai. He was a conservative rabbi. He said indecent means serious sexual sin, most likely adultery, is what the Old Testament scripture is referring to. But there was also a liberal rabbi named Hillel. And he said, well, no, indecent would include adultery, but it, it's really any and every reason that a guy finds that's objectionable in his wife, anything she's done that's distasteful, including, Hillel said, burning the dinner. Now, I want, you, I want to take you back to Matthew chapter 19. Let me reread that opening verse. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So what school of thought is prompting this question? Is it Shammai or is it Hillel? Call out. Okay, this is the Hillelite interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Any reason a guy gives to divorce his wife is legit. And, and, and by the way, this is still, you know, in many Middle Eastern cultures, this is still the way things work. Any and every reason a guy finds you know, displeasure with his wife. I was reading my news magazine uh, a month or so ago. I came across a blurb about a, a dude in Dubai, and he had just divorced his wife because she had not brought, brought his afternoon tea to him on time. Now, I'm not making this up. This was in, in my news magazine. The first time it happened, the tea was late. He, he said, you know, this can't happen again. And the second time it happened, he said, you are now in big trouble. And the third time it happened, he didn't even speak to her. He texted to her, I divorce you. That was it. That was the end of the marriage. Now, to our Western ears, that sounds pretty ridiculous. But the fact of the matter is, we treat divorce just about as loosely in our culture. We just manage to cover it up with sophisticated, fancy words. You know, we talk about irreconcilable differences or mutual uh, incompatibility. You know, we say, well, we've fallen out of love with each other, or we no longer have anything in common, or I just need to find somebody who can make me happy. Friends, we're Hillelites. <laughs> we, we are Hillelites in our culture today. Now, the question is, what was Jesus? Did Jesus side with the school of Hillel, or did he side with the school of Shammai? At the risk of sounding cheesy here, he was neither a Hillel school guy or a Shammai school guy. He was an old school guy. And the reason I say old school guy is because Jesus immediately took the conversation all the way back to the beginning of creation, to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, and said, we need to look at God's prescription for marriage. Okay, you guys want to argue over divorce 
But before we argue about divorce, let's, let's talk about marriage. So go back to the text, pick it up at verse 4. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, the Pharisees wanted to debate reasons to get divorced. Jesus wanted to talk about reasons to stay married. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is eventually going to talk about biblical grounds for divorce. He just doesn't think that's the appropriate place to begin the conversation. See, divorce is absolutely a last resort for Jesus. It's out of the question. It is off the table until a couple has done everything possible to restore their broken marriage because God designed marriage to last. God designed marriage to last. Let me note several things about God's prescription for marriage that Jesus emphasizes in these verses, if you're still open to Matthew 19. The first is that marriage is designed originally Marriage is designed by God for a man and a woman. Now, Jesus reminds people that you know, God created us as male and female. You see that? The reason he reminds us of that is because a marriage, and he's quoting Genesis, is made up of one of each. A, a man, Genesis says, leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. So you got a man and a wife. Now, a little theological background here. The, the original couple, Adam and Eve, had been made in the image of God. And one aspect of the image of God is, is that it's an amazing blend of diversity and unity. So on the one hand, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's diversity. On the other hand, he's one God. He's a three-in-one God. He's not three gods. He's one God diversity and unity. And so when the first marriage takes place, it's between a man and a woman, that's diversity, but they become one flesh, and that's unity. It's a reflection of the image of God. It mirrors the nature of God. And by contrast, friend, the marriage of a, a man and a man does not mirror the image of God. The marriage of a woman and a, a woman does not reflect the nature of God. And so let, let me just repeat that God's prescription for marriage, first off, is that it's to be a union of a man and a woman. And, and let me say, public opinion doesn't get to define what a marriage is. So I don't care what the polls... I don't care what the polls say and how many are now in favor of changing the definition of marriage. God defines marriage. Politicians don't define marriage. And, and even though just a decade ago, most politicians supported God's prescription, it's a man and a woman, even if they all abandon the original prescription and vote into law, a different definition. The state laws and the federal laws don't define marriage. God defines marriage. And, and I want to tell you that the strident voices in the LGBT community who want to intimidate business owners into, not, into, into supporting gay weddings, they don't get, bullies don't get to define what a marriage is. God defines what a marriage is. And if you think what I've just said, if, if to, you, know, you want to spin it to make it sound like hate or intolerance, I want you to know I will go on loving and welcoming both as friends and attenders at Christ Community Church, people from the LGBT community. But only God is going to define marriage for me. And by the way, when you clapped a few moments ago, I hope, I hope as a church, we clap for both the biblical principle of what a marriage is, but also for a loving openness to people who disagree that they are welcome and we're going to love them if they come to our church. Thank you. Yeah. Now, there's a second aspect of the Genesis marriage prescription that Jesus draws attention to in these verses, and it's an emphasis on oneness. 
Look again at the last line of verse 5, Matthew 19, verse 5. Jesus says, and the two will become one flesh. And then just in case Jesus' listeners were dozing, he repeats the same thought at the beginning of the next verse, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Circle the word one a couple of times there. Now, there's a lot that we could say about all that's included in this concept of oneness, but the only thing I want to point out for the sake of our series on divorce is this. Oneness is why divorce should be almost unthinkable to us. Divorce is the breaking up of a oneness that ought to be indivisible. You don't break up oneness. Yeah, silly analogy might help here. When I, when I go to Starbucks or some other coffee shop, occasionally I will order a blended drink. I'll say, hey, give me half regular, half decaf coffee. And then if I'm in a squirrely mood, I might mess with a barista by saying something like this. Hey, and put the decaf on top, okay? <laughs> and occasionally, you know, I'll run into a, a barista who's, who's way too serious. And they'll go, okay, got it. Decaf on top. You know, but most understand, um, you know, I'm messing with them, even though it's pretty stupid humor, because they understand that once you put regular and decaf into one cup, they, they blend together, there's a mix, it doesn't matter which one's on top, you know, you can't separate the two, right? When a husband and wife become one flesh, you, you can't separate that oneness and if you try, it does serious damage to both parties. And that's why the third aspect of God's prescription for marriage, which Jesus reminds his listeners of in Matthew 19, is permanence. Look at the closing line of verse 6. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God intends marriage to be permanent. That's why a couple's wedding vows include the line, till death do us Heart. What they're saying is we're making a lifelong commitment. Now, Jesus' hostile interrogators, they didn't like what he was saying because it sounded to them as, as if he was intimating that divorce is never an option. You know, look, look at their objection in the next verse, verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. Now, it's important that we notice there's a word play going on here. Okay, the, the Pharisees say, well, wait a second. Moses commanded a guy, you know, if there's trouble in the marriage, Moses commanded that he give his wife a certificate of divorce. Jesus said he did not command it, he permitted it. Big difference. So you Pharisees are treating divorce as if it's a matter of course, a complete necessity, almost mandatory. If your marriage is sucky, get out of it. And he said, you know, God didn't command it. It's true that he gave permission in extreme cases, and we're, we're about to take a look at what those are. But God would rather have you focus on how to fix your troubled marriage than on how to get out of it. Again, understand, Jesus, he didn't want to get pulled into this controversy over divorce between the followers of Shammai and the followers of, of Hillel. He didn't want to talk about breaking up. He wanted to talk about staying together. Now, does that mean that Jesus didn't see any legitimate grounds for divorce? No, we're about to look at what Jesus and, and then the Apostle Paul had to say about legitimate grounds for divorce. But here's the point. If you're married here today, Jesus would like you to take the D word out of your vocabulary. Okay. Just don't use it. Jesus would like you to stop using divorce as a threat when you get in a heated argument with your spouse. Jesus would like you to make an appointment with a counselor instead of an appointment with a lawyer. Jesus would like you to hang out with friends who champion faithfulness, who say, hang in there, instead of friends who encourage you to just get rid of them, get rid of her, move on. Jesus would like you to sign up for Christ Community Church's marriage restoration course, which begins a week from Tuesday at our St. Charles campus. How's that for an infomercial? 
but I mean it. You know, there's not a marriage in any of our four auditoriums right now that couldn't use from time to time what we cover in marriage restoration. So I say, do yourself a favor. A week from Tuesday night, it's a nine or ten week course, sign up for marriage restoration at our St. Charles campus. Jesus doesn't want you to think about divorce until you've done everything possible to restore your marriage. Just a footnote to this point. Friends, marriage is character school. Okay, when you surrender your life to Jesus, God begins to remake, reshape your character so that you become more and more like his son. And one of the ways he does that, if you're married, is through your spouse. And I got to tell you, this is sometimes really uncomfortable. It's irritating. It's discouraging. It's disappointing on occasion. So you can opt out of character school and say, I'm not staying in for this course. But I'll, t I'll tell you, God is relentless. He will teach you these character lessons, whether or not you choose to leave character school. So you might as well stay in and learn what it is that God's trying to teach you. You might as well start praying, God, what do you have me to learn from this current controversy in, in my marriage? What is it you want to teach me in this situation? You get it? Good. And now we're ready to talk about divorce, but only because we've talked about marriage first. Okay, so number two, permission for divorce. We left off at verse 8 of Matthew 19, so let's read the next verse, verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Okay, key word in this verse, I want you to circle it if you've got your Bible open on your lap or highlight it on your phone Bible, is the word except. There, there are two exceptions in Scripture that permit a married person to get a divorce. One of those exceptions is described right here, just read it, Matthew 19, verse 9. A second exception is found in 1 Corinthians 7, penned by the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at that passage in just a moment. But before we look at the two exceptions, you know, I want to briefly respond to those who argue that there is no exception in the Bible for divorce. Or there are others who say, yeah, there's an exception, but there's one. There's, there's only one. So let's start with those who say there, there is no exception in the Bible for divorce. Divorce. Why do people say that? Well, there are several reasons. Let me give you the most popular one. The most popular one in that camp is that God hates divorce. Now, how many of you have heard that saying, God hates divorce? Raise your hand. You heard that? Okay, God hates. It comes from a line in the King James Version of Malachi 2, verse 16. Now, let me, let me put it up there on the screen so you could see it. Malachi 2, verse 16 King James Version says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Now, at Christ's community, we don't use the old King James Version. We new, use a newer English translation called the NIV. It's quite frankly built on better scholarship than the old version is. And this is how Malachi 2 verse 16 reads in the NIV. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. You say, whoa, there's quite a difference in those two interpretations of the original Hebrew, aren't there? See, in, in one case, King James Version, God hates divorce. In the New, New, New International Version, it's the man who hates and divorces his wife. And in the original Hebrew, you know, it doesn't help us a whole lot, the Hebrew, because it, it, it's just the indescript third-person singular pronoun, he. So is the he God who hates divorce, or is the he the man who hates and divorces his wife? And some of you are saying, oh, my head hurts. You know, I'm no Bible scholar. How am I to determine which is the right interpretation here? Well, one of the things I've taught you about interpreting the Bible is that you should always look at a, at a verse in its context. I love you guys. In its context. Not only the immediate context, what's right around that verse, but also the broader context of the Bible as a whole. 
So, so let's do that with Malachi 2, verse 16. Let's start with the Bible as a whole. Do you know any other passage in all of Scripture that says God hates divorce? There isn't one. Nowhere else. In fact, let me tell you something interesting. Did you know that God is divorced? You say, don't be serious. So irreverent. I'm not being irreverent. I'm quoting Scripture. Jeremiah 3, verse 8. There are several other passages that say the same thing. God says, because Israel was unfaithful to me, I gave her a certificate of divorce and sent her away. So if God hates divorce and all divorce, that means all divorce is wrong, then God's been wrong. I don't think anybody wants to say that, do you? So so there's another possibility here. Not only that uh, there's no divorce, but also that there's one, there's one possible exception. And that's the exception that we find here. Oh, you know what? I didn't, I'm just looking at my notes. I didn't cover the more immediate context. Let me hit on that. So the broader context, you know, makes it impossible to interpret that there's no exception because God himself has divorced. The more immediate context, I failed to mention that. If you look at Matthew or Malachi 2, verse 16, in its immediate context, it's addressing a particular problem in ancient Israel. Middle-aged guys were dumping their frumpy middle-aged wives, and they were remarrying younger foreign hotties. That's the Nicodemus translation. It's, <laughs> you won't find that anywhere else, okay? So Now, here's why I tell you the context. Even if you want to accept the King James Version that God hates divorce, you've got to read it in the context of a very particular situation. What is the kind of divorce that God hates? It's the kind I just described to you, not, not divorce in general. You with me? Okay, now let's go to the other argument. Some argue, well, no, there is an exception for divorce. It's right here in Matthew 19, verse 9, but this is the only exception. There's only one. So why do people argue that this is the only exception? Well, let me reread the verse to you. It says, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus gives only one exception for divorce here, and that's sexual immorality. You know, so that's it, period. Not a must. Here's the problem with that argument. It fails to take into account that Jesus was addressing a very specific controversy in Matthew 19. I've already described it to you. You know, there, 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 there were some Hillelites who had come to him and, and said, said, is it true that Moses commanded a guy to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, these are the Hillelites speaking, any and every reason. Now, imagine if you would that as they ask Jesus this question, they give him a list of possible exceptions that allow for divorce. And let's say there are five things on the list. Okay, so on the list, we've already mentioned one. They said for burning the dinner, okay? Is it okay to divorce a wife for burning the dinner? Or let's add to that a second one they put on the list, nagging. Or a third one, she spends too much money at the mall. Or or a fourth one, she's put on weight. Or a fifth one, okay, let's throw in adultery. We'll we'll throw that one in. And they give the list to Jesus. And so the question is this, is it okay for a guy to divorce his wife for the reasons on this list? And Jesus scans the list, and what does he say? He says, except for sexual immorality, No, that's the only exception, but not, please understand, not the only exception in the world, but the only exception on the Hillelite list of trivialities. You following this? So this this is why those who say, well, you know, there's one exception, one only, okay, just a misunderstanding of the background to what Jesus is addressing here. Now, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says the exceptions are for divorce, and there are two biblical exceptions, not none, not one. And the two exceptions are more like two categories of exceptions. Each category 
made up of several possible points. So the first exception is the one we've been looking at here in Matthew 19, verse 9, for sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word that gets translated into our English as sexual immorality here is the word porneia. Say porneia with me. Porneia. Now, the reason I had you say that, does that sound like any English word you know? Pornography. Okay, now the word gets translated into English as sexual immorality, but it covers a wide variety of sexual sins. It includes adultery. That's probably the list topper, okay? But porneia, porneia covers any sexual intercourse that's not with your spouse. Any sexual intercourse that's not with your spouse. So that would include prostitution. That would include homosexuality. That would include sex with a single person. And just an aside here, in Jesus' day, Jewish married men would sometimes argue that they could have a fling with another woman as long as she was single. If she's single, that's not adultery. You say, well, that's pretty lame. But stop and think, we do that in our culture today, don't we? You know, a guy is flirting with a, a woman. What's the first thing he does? He takes a look at her ring finger. And if she's not wearing a wedding, wedding ring, what does he conclude? I say, yeah, this is legit. This is okay. Because she's not married, this is not adultery. But hello, if you are, it's sexual immorality. If you're married, any sexual relationship outside of a marriage. So porneia might also include, and I have to be careful about this one, because not all Bible scholars would agree with what I'm about to say, but some would. Some would say that porneia might also include the habitual use of pornography. If you're carrying on fantasy sexual relationships with naked women that you view on porn sites, if that's becoming an addiction to you, so much so that you're not as interested in sex with your spouse as you once were, or when you do make love to her, you're thinking about some other body that you've seen on your PC, that might qualify as porneia. You know, porneia, sexual immorality. It's an exception for which God permits divorce. Now let me emphasize again, God permits. God permits divorce for certain exceptions, the two that we're going to be looking at, but he doesn't mandate it. He doesn't even encourage it. So even if your spouse commits immorality, sexual immorality, you may choose, listen, you may choose to hang in there with them if they're truly sorry. You know, if they truly want to look for help, turn their life around, if they're willing to be held accountable, a lot of ifs, but if they're willing to do, to do that, you may choose to work at the marriage, restoring the marriage. But I just want you to know that God permits divorce for sexual immorality. And I need to say that several times because some of you have divorced a spouse for reasons of sexual immorality and you still feel to this day that you somehow have let God down, that you've deeply disappointed God, that you've done something horribly wrong, that you broke God's heart. And I want, I want you to know God's heart was broken, but he wasn't broken because you took the exception clause and you used it. He was broken because of your partner's sexual immorality. That's what broke God's heart. And I want you to be free from false condemnation. Yeah, God's desire is that your marriage be lifelong. But he knows that sexual immorality destroys the oneness for which he designed that relationship. And so he permits divorce. Let's take a look at the second cause for divorce. It's 1 Corinthians 7. So why don't you turn in your Bibles to the right. 1 Corinthians 7. While you're finding 1 Corinthians 7, let me give you some background. Paul is addressing in this passage a very specific problem. Okay, he's writing in Corinthians, he's writing to a group of people who were relatively new followers of Jesus. And as new believers in Christ, they faced a unique problem. You know, they came to Christ, but in some cases their spouses didn't. 
And, and now in some of those cases, their spouses no longer want to be married to them. They're sick and tired of that Jesus thing. They don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. And, and so now these new believers are asking Paul, so what do we do? You know, our spouse wants to leave. Should we fight for the marriage? And what if we fight and they leave anyway? Must we continue then as a married person because marriage is lifelong? Do we need to keep the ring on our finger? Do we refuse to sign the divorce certificate? Do we refuse the option of possible remarriage? What should we do? So this is Paul's response. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read one verse. Wish we could look at the entire context together. But let me read one verse, verse 15. Paul says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. Let them go. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. Not bound, by the way, is a legal expression there, meaning you're, you're not obligated to the marriage. The divorce is allowed. You're free to consider remarriage. God has called us to live in peace. Now, this is the Bible's second exception for divorce. Bible scholars usually refer to it as abandonment. Abandonment. Some Bible scholars try to define this exception very narrowly. They say, well, look at the words of verse 15 here. Paul is speaking only to those who are Christ followers themselves and whose spouse is an adamant unbeliever and who has physically left the house. So these Bible scholars say, if it seems to you like you've been abandoned in your marriage, but your spouse claims to be a believer, or if your spouse seems to have abandoned you, but is still living under the same roof, then this exception does not apply to you. Well, at Christ Community Church, we disagree with that sort of reasoning. Here's how we interpret 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. If your spouse abandons you, well, first of all, even if they claim to be a Christ follower, the fact that they're willing to abandon you indicates that they're acting like an unbeliever, not a believer. So this exception applies to you. It does apply. And, and what's more, even if they stay under the same roof, if they're practicing abandonment-like behaviors then this exception applies to you. Now, immediately you're asking, what do you mean abandonment-like behaviors? Well, you could be abandoned, friend, even if your spouse doesn't leave the premises, right? I mean, abandonment includes much more than just a geographical relocation. If your spouse, for example, if your, your spouse has abandoned your marriage for an alcohol addiction, you know, that, that may fit the exception clause here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Or if your spouse is abusive. Now, I'm talking about they're, they're so verbally or physically abusive that, that you have to leave the house for your own emotional or physical safety. That seems to fit the abandonment exception. Or, or if your spouse is totally neglectful with regard to financial responsibility. Maybe they're involved in gambling or they just refuse to work or they're spending your family into ginormous debt. That may constitute financial abandonment. Or how about this one? If your husband or your wife has no interest in a sexual relationship, and this is actually one that Paul addresses in the passage that we're looking at right here. Go and look at the first part of Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 7 that I'm looking at. Look at the middle of verse 2. We've been in verse 15. Middle of verse 2, he says, Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. Verse 3, listen, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. What's Paul's advice here? He's saying don't abandon your spouse sexually. Just a side note here. Some Bible scholars feel that Paul is basing this abandonment exception on an Old Testament law. And you'll find that Old Testament law in Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. In Exodus 21, 10 and 11... 
Scripture addresses a woman who's the first wife of a guy who's decided to take a second wife. Now, in Old Testament times, bigamy was allowed. It was frowned upon, but it was allowed. And the Scripture says, Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11 say, that if your husband does not care for you, if he stops providing for your needs, including your need for sexual fulfillment, you have the right to divorce him. This is in Old Testament scripture, Exodus 21, 10 and 11. And so some Bible scholars say that's probably what Paul is basing 1 Corinthians 7, 15 on this Old Testament principle. Now, let me just say, we got to be awful careful with the abandonment exception. The behaviors that we're talking about here have to be pretty chronic. They have to be fairly extreme to qualify for this exception. You know, you can't say, well, my husband called me a jerk in our argument, and so that's verbal abuse, that's abandonment, I'm getting a divorce. Or you can't say, my wife ran up the credit card at the shopping mall, that's financial abandonment, you know, I'm dumping her. So it's got to be way more serious than that. You say, well, how serious? Or, or another way to ask the how serious question is, who gets to define what abandonment looks like? Now, you, you want to, as a couple, define that when there's no objectivity in the relationship at the time, when there's trouble in the relationship, everything looks like abandonment, right? So this is where being part of a caregiving church, where it's so important. You know, here at Christ Community Church, we have godly leaders. We have pastors and elders and community group leaders and marriage counselors. And we're here not only to help you fight for your marriage, not only to stay in there and restore it when it's broken, but also help you define when an exception has been met for divorce. Now, you might, always, you might not always like our decision. But we'll tell you, yeah, you know, that does look like sexual immorality. That does look like abandonment. According to God's word, you have permission for divorce. Having said that, I want you to know we'll never encourage you to divorce because the Bible doesn't encourage you to divorce even though it gives you exceptions. We will say you meet the exception. It's your decision before God. But I got to say this one more time. Some of you have been carrying around a truckload of guilt. Some of you have been living under a black cloud of condemnation because at some point in the past you divorced a spouse for the legitimate reason of sexual immorality or abandonment. But along the way, some church told you or some family member told you or maybe your own conscience accused you. God hates divorce. You've sinned horribly. And I want to say, no, you haven't sinned. And don't let anybody, not even yourself, condemn you in that situation. Yes, the divorce breaks God's heart, but what breaks his heart is the behavior that led to it, not the decision that you took to act on the biblical exception. You get it? It's good. Now, if you're looking at your notes, you're saying... We're almost out of time here, and he's got one point to go. Well, I, I discovered the same thing as I was putting my notes together. I, you know, covered two points and realized I'd bit off more than I can choose. So we're not going to get to point three today. So we covered, number one, God's prescription for marriage. We covered, number two, God's, uh, God's prescription for marriage. Number two, God's permission for divorce. We didn't get to number three, God's precaution for remarriage. And number three is a really, really important point for those of you who've been divorced. I mean, you now know, based on what we learned today, that God permits divorce for certain exceptions. But, but does God permit remarriage? And if so, what conditions need to be met in order to be assured that God is going to bless this new marriage that I enter into? And so we're going to cover that two weeks from today. We can't cover it next week because we're going to do that interview with a couple that's been divorced and has been remarried. And we're going to take a look at the, you know, the pluses and minuses of that from the standpoint of God's word. But two weeks from today, when we cover divorce recovery, steps for moving ahead, we're going to look at the topic of remarriage. Now, what I'd like to do, we're going to call our bands out because we're going to sing a song. It's a fitting song because it's about God's love, about God's faithfulness to us. We're going to take 
are offering up, because that's a great response to God's love, is just to give back to him our financial resources that came from his hand. But let, let me say this. As we sing this song, you know, last night when we sang it to close our service, I got to tell you, it just wrecked me. I was off stage and you know, I was crying. I was wondering how, how I was going to come out and close the service because... We're singing about the faithfulness of God, and I'm thinking to myself, God, I know if 40 to 50% of divorce of marriages end in divorce, there are many people among the hundreds who come to Christ Community Church for one of our services who've experienced this. They've been deeply wounded, and they desperately need to know of your love. Even those who've been guilty of divorce on non-biblical grounds need to know of the forgiveness that's available if they'll repent and come to Christ and humble themselves, surrender to him. And so as we sing this song, let it soothe your troubled heart. Let it, let it be a medicine to you. Let it be a balm to heal your wound. So let me pray for you. And then we're going to sing and take our offering. And then our, our four campuses, the pastors will come out on the platform and close in prayer. God, I just... I want to pray right now for those who are in the throes of a difficult marriage. First of all, that you would convince them that there, there is hope and that they would turn to you and say, God, what can I learn in this situation? What do you want to teach me in character school? How can I, with your help, keep this thing together? And God, I want to pray for those who've gone through divorce, painful divorce. I want to pray for those who divorced a spouse for biblical reasons and have felt bad about it ever since, that today they would, they would be freed of a false guilt that you never intended they carry. And God, I want to pray for those of us who are guilty parties. There is only one whose blood can wash away our sin. There's only one who can forgive completely and restore us and make us into new people, and that's you. And so we come to you. We want to bask in your love as we sing. We want to be assured that there's restoration possible. And for every one of us, God, who's not struggling with this topic at all, bring to our minds as we sing those who need to know of the love of Christ because they are in the thick of the battle right now. And we need to be the ambassador that brings this good news of Jesus' love to them. We pray in his name. Amen.